Well, I will never, ever forget um, my first day of classes in college. My first class was at 9 a.m. This is my freshman year. I'd been on campus about a week. My first class was at 9 a.m., and uh, I had a job working at the snack shop on campus. Glamorous, I know. And so I, w- I decided, uh, or they had me scheduled to go into work early uh, before my first class. And my job was I was doing deliveries for the snack shop and also picking things up from around campus. So we'd take a minivan out and uh, go pick up French fries or frozen French fries or whatever it was from around campus, bring it back to the snack shop and unload it. And I was still new enough at the job that my boss, my immediate supervisor, was riding with me in the van. So I got there at 7, 7.30. We hop in the van. And, uh, you know, my boss was a nice man, but pretty austere, uh, not a real jovial fella. And so he was in the van with me, and we went out, and everything was going well. Looking forward to my first class, and we get back to the the snack shop, and we go to the back of the snack shop, and there's a loading dock, and, uh, you know, you back the van up to the loading dock, and I remember making a comment to my supervisor sitting next to me. I said, you know, I've never been really good at using the mirrors on the van when I back it up, and... I proceeded to press the gas and back it up and look in the mirrors, and all of a sudden, I rather forcefully slammed the van into the loading dock and crushed the back of the van. And (laughs) needless to say, my boss, who was sitting right next to me, was not incredibly pleased with my performance that particular play day. And this was all, this all happened before my very first class of college. So I'll never forget uh, walking out of work and going to uh, my first class and just feeling like an idiot. (laughs) I'll never forget that. And many times, I think you all probably have memories of when you just started something. Maybe you just started a new job. Maybe you uh, you know, participated in some group for the first time, and maybe maybe the first uh, day, the first week, something very memorable happened. And, and a lot of times when we start something new, there can be a memorable day, some event that takes place. Well, last week in Mark chapter 1, we studied how the disciples, the first four disciples, were called by Jesus to come and to follow him. And that was in Mark 1, verses 16 to 20. Well, I'm confident that as they were called in that passage, that they really didn't know the full extent of what would happen uh, as they began the process of following Jesus. But very, very early on in that, they're going to get a taste of what following him is going to be like. And so today we're going to study Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 39. And uh, there it is. I was supposed to click it to get it to come up there. Good. So today we're going to study this text, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 39. And this is, I don't know that this was the first day of the job for the disciples, but it was very early on. And the thing about this passage is the entire thing, verses 21 to 39, all takes place on one in one 24-hour day. This is a day, one day in the life of the ministry of Jesus. Our word for today, you can see on the screen, is authority. And as part of our Gospel Basics series, we've gone through several different words, but the word authority is the word for today. And this 24-hour period, this one 24-hour period, 
showcases for us the authority of Jesus Christ. And I think Mark puts this day in the life of Christ right up front in his gospel to sort of give us an example of what Christ's ministry looked like and also to describe to us the authority that Jesus had as he went around and and did ministry in in the region uh, that he did during his time. So basically what you have this morning is this text puts Christ's kingdom authority. Remember we talked about kingdom, but it puts his kingdom authority on full display. And really it calls us to respond appropriately to that kingdom authority. That's the application for us. How are you going to respond to the authority of Jesus Christ? Now, before we get to a day in the life of Christ that we're going to see here and study through this, I want to explain to you kind of how we're going to go about this this morning. It's going to be a bit different than we normally do. Typically, uh, you know, I've been here about eight weeks. Typically, I give you an outline and give you a summary statement of what we're going to study, and we walk through that outline. And I do that to try to help you to follow along. And, you know, occasionally, if you need to come up for air, we get to a new point, and you can sort of rehitch your, your wagon to what we're doing. Well, this morning, we're not going to do that. This morning, this is a story. This is one day in the life of Christ. And sometimes when you come to the narrative passages of Scripture, sometimes it's better to just let the story carry you along. And this morning, I want you to feel the rhythm and the ebb and the flow of what a day in the life of Christ looked like. I just want you to immerse yourself in this day as if you're there with the disciples watching all of this amazing stuff unfold. If you're a parent, or if you've been a parent before, or if you've just interacted with kids or taught kids, you know that children love stories. And I don't think that we ever grow out of that. We may not admit it, but all of us love stories. Stories engage us on a level that reciting facts just can't do to us. A story is something that can absolutely reshape who you are at the deepest level. And a lot of times when you listen to a story, you're not even realizing the full impact that it's having on you. So if you're a parent, make sure you pick out good stories for your kids because stories are doing something to us that we often don't even realize. One of my favorite authors, his name is Nate Wilson. He has this fabulous book where he says this, even in adults... Stories groom instincts. Think about that. What's your first reaction when something happens? Your instinct. Well, the stories that you have listened to have groomed those instincts, whether you realize it or not. Stories groom instincts, and instincts control loyalties, and loyalties shape choices. Why do you do what you do today? It's largely a product of the story that you believe you inhabit and the stories that you have immersed yourself into. And so today, I want us to immerse ourselves in a story. This story, I think, will grab your your mind, certainly, with information about Jesus, but I'm hoping that the truths of Scripture, the story of Christ here, will grab your gut as well this morning. I want you to feel what happens deep in your soul today. So get caught up in this story with me. Let's look at verse 21. After he calls the disciples, it says, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So Jesus is in the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. He calls these four men to follow him. And now they go into a particular city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. 
Capernaum, if you're familiar with the gospel, sort of became like home base for Jesus. They would go back to Capernaum. Uh, Some people believe they spent the winters at Capernaum when it wasn't wise or expedient to travel around. So they go to Capernaum, and Jesus does something here that is very, very normal for him in the Gospels. The rest of verse 21 says that he went, and on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, just keep in mind when you read that, that a synagogue is not the same thing as the temple in Jerusalem. There's one temple where sacrifices took place, and then there are synagogues all over the countryside in all sorts of cities in Israel and ultimately around the Roman Empire. If you had 10 Jewish men, age 13 or older, in a particular location, you could have a synagogue. And so that's what you have here in Capernaum. The synagogue was sort of like an assembly hall. Um, It honestly may have been a room kind of like this. And the people would gather there on the Sabbath or on Saturday, we would say. They would gather for teaching and for instruction. They're not offering sacrifices. They come and they receive teaching from the Old Testament law at the synagogue. Now, in the synagogue, there wouldn't have been a pastor, sort of a a paid employee that did all of the teaching. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the normal practice for a synagogue. What would happen? There was a leader of the synagogue, and this particular man would invite people from the community to come in and to teach on a particular Sabbath. Maybe there was a traveling scribe or a rabbi that was coming through the area. He knew the guy, and so he would say, why don't you come and why don't you do an exposition on some Old Testament passage? And so here, it seems likely that Jesus knew the guy that ran the synagogue here, and the guy had invited him to come in and to speak at this particular synagogue. Now, as he speaks, look at the reaction of the crowd in verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. The people are astonished. I think the reaction here is something like when you see a great athlete perform in person. Uh, Let's do a Detroit thing here. Maybe it's like watching Barry Sanders, right? compete in in person. You see him move. You see him juke people. You see him play football. And it's shocking. You've never seen someone move like that. You've never seen someone do uh, athletic things like that. I think that's the reaction that they were having here to Christ's teaching. It doesn't tell us what he taught, but they are awed by the way in which he went about teaching the scriptures. It is shocking to watch. And look at what they say here. Look at what they're talking about amongst themselves. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, I don't think what Mark is doing here is, uh, is downplaying the importance of the scribes. I think he's, the people are making a comparison here between Jesus and the scribes, but they're not saying the scribes are terrible teachers. They're no good. Finally, we got someone who's a good teacher. I don't think that's what they're doing here. The scribes were some of the most important instructors in the land. These guys were educated. They copied the law. They studied the law. They were involved with the Old Testament law almost on a daily basis. The scribes were revered by the common people who would have attended a synagogue like this. In fact, if a scribe walked down the street, a common person would defer to them because they were so well-respected, because they, they appreciated their teaching of the law. 
And so for the people to respond this way to Jesus and say, wow, he's preaching with authority, it's different than the scribes. That was saying something about the teaching of Jesus Christ. It was unique and it was authoritative. Now, when you really stop to think about it, it kind of makes sense because the scribes were interpreters of the law. They would read the Old Testament law, they would study it, they would copy it, and then they would interpret the Old Testament law. Now, that's different than what Jesus does, isn't it? Jesus can speak with direct authority because he's the one that wrote the Old Testament law. This is the difference here, and what's happening here is the difference between hearing a second-hand account of a battle scene and interviewing a survivor who was there at the scene of the battle and participated in the battle. It's much more lively. It's much more authoritative. And that's the difference in Christ's teaching here. He can tell them what it means with confidence and with authority. It's very, very different than the scribes. So you can imagine sitting there in that synagogue being awed and shocked by this teacher and by his teaching on the Old Testament law, the way he taught with authority, with the power to direct, the power to tell people what to do and what to believe about the Old Testament law. He taught with authority, and they're they're sitting there, they're listening to this happen, And then, right in the middle of this, something completely unsettling goes down. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, a demon. And he cried out. Now, I don't know how you read where it says he cried out. I don't know if you think of a baby sort of crying because they're frustrated or hungry, but that's not what happened here. The people are sitting there, and they're listening to Jesus teach. And this is a murderous, hair-raising scream that goes out in the midst of this instruction. It stops everything. It is disruptive. Can you imagine sitting there in the synagogue, hearing this teaching, and the air is split with a spine-tingling scream that goes out? Look what the demon says in verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, what the demon says here puts this whole episode that we're going to read in perspective. Look what he says there back in verse 24. Have you come to destroy us? This is the perspective that we need to read this encounter from. He acknowledges that Jesus has come for that purpose, to destroy him and his associates. What you're supposed to see as you read this is two kingdoms at war. We've read about the kingdom that Christ is proclaiming. And here we're reading about his authority. And the demon recognizes that. And he knows that he has a group of friends, other demons, and ultimately Satan, who are on this side. They're associated together. And he knows that their kingdom and Christ's kingdom, which is advancing, are in conflict with one another. Listen to Mark chapter 3. You can flip over there if you want. It's just a page over. Verse 24. Look what Christ says here. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. You can see how Jesus puts the battle between himself and the demons and ultimately Satan in the context of two different kingdoms. And that's what's happening here in Mark chapter 1 when this man, possessed by a demon, cries out in the middle of this synagogue. This is a direct confrontation between two kingdoms, and ultimately it's going to be a demonstration of the authority of Christ's power and his kingdom. You can see here in verse 24, if you go back there, at the end of the verse, the demon actually tries to use Christ's name. He names him, and that was a way of trying to gain authority and power over him. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's trying to gain authority over him, but look what Jesus does in response. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. A simple command. This guy is screamed out, and Christ commands simply, no exorcism, ritual. He just looks at him and says, shut up, (laughs) and come out of him. Leave him, and look what happens in verse 26. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Certainly he obeys but I want you to notice here in this, in this passage, in verse 26, the difference in the two kingdoms that are described here. If we've got a conflict between two kingdoms, what are the characteristics that are demonstrated by each of the kingdoms? What I'm asking is, how do the demons treat those who they have authority over? What do they do to those type of people? Well, throughout the Gospel of Mark, if you were to read it this afternoon, you would see several different instances where Christ casts a demon out of someone. And I'll tell you, these, these stories, there's two big ones in chapter 5 and in chapter 9. They are sad, sad stories. I mean, these folks are under the absolute bondage of these demons, and they do not treat them kindly. Their authority is not the type of leadership and rule that you want to be placed under. They treat the people terribly. And you can see here as he comes out, he tries to convulse and he tries to abuse the guy even as he obeys Christ's command and he comes out of him. But with that in mind, you can see the contrast here with the kingdom of Christ, with his authority. His kingdom and his rule is a place that frees troubled souls, that does good to people. Jesus' kingdom and his authority he uses to set things right. That's what his kingdom looks like. And throughout the gospel of Mark, you're going to see Christ bring freedom and peace to troubled souls and to those who are enslaved. And that's still what happens today as his kingdom advances. Now look how the people react. I mean, you can imagine watching this unfold. Look at verse 27, how the people react. And they were all amazed. They were all amazed. Now, this is a different word than was used in verse 22. When they were listening to his teaching, they were astonished. But this is a different word. 
This word has a hint of panic in it. They are unsettled. I mean, it makes sense, right? (laughs) I mean, you can imagine sitting in a room, maybe this size, someone screams out in the middle of the service, in the middle of the teaching, interrupts the teacher. The teacher looks at him. You've already been amazed at this teacher. And he looks at the guy and simply commands a demon to come out of him. That would be, and the demon leaves him. The guy convulses, the demon leaves. That would be pretty, pretty unsettling thing to happen on a typical Sabbath Saturday morning. But what's happening here for these people is they're making a connection. And I hope you don't miss this connection. Look what they say in verse 27. So that they questioned among themselves. There's murmuring going on saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And here's what they mean by authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. It's unsettling to realize that the same person who you've just listened to teach with authority, what he said to you carries the weight and the power to be able to cast a demon out of someone. And my guess is here that the people are probably going, if he has that kind of authority and power where he can command the demons and they obey him, what are the implications of that authority for his teaching to me? What does that mean for my response? He's telling us that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom has arrived, we should repent and believe. Okay, <laughs> he, his, his teaching carries authority, so what does that mean for my life? And I think it's an easy application, but maybe we should think the same thing. If he has this kind of authority, if he has this kind of power and the right to, to decide and to interpret, what does that mean for us and our response to his person and work? Now, you can imagine if something like this happens, you can't keep it quiet. You can't keep it quiet even in the days before Instagram and Facebook. Look at verse look at verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Can't keep it secret. But what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't hang out at the synagogue. He doesn't take questions. He doesn't keep teaching. Instead, he moves on. Remember, keep in mind, it's the Sabbath. And so he and his disciples head straight to a place that they're going to be comfortable at. They head to Peter's house in Capernaum. Look at verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon, Peter, and Andrew with James and John. But when he gets to the house, when he arrives there, something else has gone wrong. He finds that Peter's mother-in-law is quite ill. Look at verse 30. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) After watching this whole thing unfold in the synagogue, I guess you would kind of say, yeah, she has a fever. (laughs) She's sick. Now, we don't know exactly what was wrong with her. It just says a fever, but it was serious enough where they wanted to alert Jesus about it and see what he would do. Now, in the story of the man in the synagogue with the demon, I describe that, and I think Scripture would describe that as a a confrontation between two kingdoms. And Christ's kingdom authority breaks in, frees that man, 
and shows that his kingdom truly has arrived. It's, a, it's not just a demonstration of his power. It's a demonstration of the arrival of his kingdom. It is breaking in to the current world and showcasing what God's kingdom will be like. We saw that in the man with the demon in the synagogue, and now we get a story about Christ's authority and his kingdom when it comes to sickness and to disease. This verse, this passage here, verses 29 to 31, shows us the reality that in Christ's kingdom, things will be set right. Of course, we don't see that fully now here. People still suffer from sickness and disease. But ultimately, one day when his kingdom is fully arrived and we're with him, this is how things are going to be. Things are going to be completely and fully set right as God intended. Look at verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. He commanded the demon to leave verbally. He spoke to him, and he obeyed. And here he says nothing. He simply goes in, takes her by the hand, physical touch, and that's all that he needs to heal her and to set things right. Now I want you to see what she does after she's been healed. Look at the rest of verse 31. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. She serves. I love how one commentator put this. Serving is the way of Jesus, and those who attend him, serving is the way of Jesus and those who attend him. And thus, it describes an essential characteristic of the kingdom of God that Jesus introduces and exemplifies. For Mark... The proper response of one who has been touched by Jesus is to serve them. That is the Christian fellowship. I know for me, far too often, I I forget that in a very real way, I have been touched by the authority and the advancing kingdom of Jesus Christ. I forget that. And when I forget that, I tend to be self-centered and self-consumed rather than looking outward to serve others. And I think the principle that's at work here, the the lesson we can learn from this is that recognizing the restoration that you have received, remembering that, understanding that you did nothing to earn or deserve the grace of Christ in your life, but recognizing that leads directly to a life of service for others. That is the natural, reasonable response When Christ enters your life and shakes things up and sets things right in your life spiritually. And if you're not motivated to serve others, if you're self-consumed, remember the restoration and the redemption that you've received. Go back to that and sort of sit in that for a while. Think about that. That's where we need to be. So, keep in mind, again, all of this takes place on the Sabbath. On that particular Saturday, the Sabbath goes from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown, one day. And you understand that the Jews were not supposed to be out and about too much on the Sabbath day. It was supposed to be a day of rest. And the Sabbath ends at sundown on Saturday. So Jesus has taught in the synagogue on this day. He's come back to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law. And there's a good chance that he and the disciples are resting 
meditating, recovering there in the house from their rather eventful day so far. And I can picture that as the sun begins to set on that particular Sabbath day, that they're sitting there resting and there's a knock on the door. And I can picture that when they open the door, they see people approaching the house from everywhere. The street is filled with people coming. And from every direction, there are people with those that they love who are blind, who are sick, who are diseased, who are demon-possessed. And they're coming to this house. Look at verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Look at verse 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Now, I've traveled multiple times overseas. One of the places that I go frequently uh, the most is Nepal. And in some ways, when I'm there, I kind of relate what I think the culture at this time was like, a a little bit poorer agrarian culture. And one of the things I've always noticed about the folks in Nepal is that if there's something unusual happening in the village, a crowd tends to to come, right? You want to see what's going on. Uh, There was one particular time where we were driving on this highway and there was an accident on the highway. A bus driver had, uh, had basically pushed a motorcyclist off the road. And the motorcyclist was none too pleased (laughs) with the damage that had been done to his motorcycle. And so there was quite an argument going down. They were blocking the highway, and there were people just, it was like, I don't know where they're coming from. (laughs) You know, but they just, they show up. They just keep showing up, and the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's kind of what I picture this being like. People just are showing up. They're coming out of the woodwork. They're gathering to the door of this house. I mean, remember verse 28? fame of him spread. Well, this is the the fruit of that. It went quickly and people are showing up. So we've seen the story of Jesus healing the demoniac in the synagogue and of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Both of those are individual stories. But now we're going to see a broad general statement of the work that Jesus does in healing and restoring those who are possessed by demons. And when you read this broad statement here in verse 34, I want you to keep in mind, sometimes when we read a statement like this, we, think, we, we just tend to generalize it. Oh, wow, that's neat. But the stories that we just read about the man in the synagogue and about Peter's mother-in-law, those are individual people who had real families who were directly impacted by the arrival of the kingdom of Jesus. And so when you read about the whole city gathering at his door, just understand that there were people coming to his door who had someone in their family who had been blind from birth. And there were people showing up at his door who'd had a son who was demon-possessed, and it would throw him in the fire, and it would convulse him. And they had no idea what to do with it. And there was no medicine. There was no healing techniques. There were no antibiotics. What do you do with someone who's sick like this? And so it totally makes sense that all of these people would show up at his door that evening. Look what happens in verse 34. And he healed many. Now, this doesn't mean he healed some and didn't heal others. This means there were a lot of people showing up. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. All sorts of issues were showing up. Various diseases and cast out many demons. 
These are broken people. And the brokenness of the world that ultimately resulted from sin, from Adam and Eve's sin, the brokenness of the world has consumed these people and they're living in the midst of it. And Christ's kingdom breaks in for a moment here and they're able to get restoration and healing and to be restored. And it's an amazing thing. Christ's kingdom has the power and the authority to set things right. And that's what this demonstrates for us. But notice something interesting here in verse 34. And he would not, the end of verse 34, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. One of the things you're going to see in the Gospel of Mark Kind of keep this in the back of your mind as we study through this. But throughout the first half of the gospel of Mark, you really see Jesus silencing demons, silencing even those whom he's healed, saying, I, I, don't, want you to, I don't want you to spread the word about me out and about, okay? I don't want you to go and tell people. In fact, we're going to see that next week at the end of this chapter. Jesus consistently does that. And it, we kind of understand why he does it with demons, But this is a pattern for him. Why does he do that? Why doesn't Jesus want to spread the word about his miracles and about his identity around? That's a question we need to wrestle with, and we'll get to that in a minute. And I think what you see at the end of this chapter will help us to understand that. Look at verse 35. The next morning, after he sends everyone away, probably late, late into the evening... I mean, if, if I had a sick son and this guy was healing people in front of my eyes, I, I wouldn't leave that door. <laughs> I'd be staying there as long as it took. Look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. One of the things we learn from this is that Despite all the miracles he's doing, despite the arrival of the kingdom, Christ's relationship with his father is the most important aspect of who he is. He has to stay connected to his father. And what happens here as he goes out and prays is this keeps him oriented toward his mission. This helps him to stay on target and on task. And what's his mission? What's his goal? Well, that becomes clear in his interaction with his disciples. Look at verse 36. I love this. And Simon and those who are with him searched for him. Now that, that word there is uh, tracked him down, pursued him. They want to know where he's at because they've just seen all this happen and they're thinking, we got to get a hold of this guy. Look at verse 37. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. That's why they're after him. Even at this early hour, it's still dark. People are wanting to know where Jesus is and who can blame them. And his disciples are caught up in this whole experience, right? I mean, they're going, Jesus, there's people looking for you. Let's capitalize on this thing. Let's go back. Let's set up shop in Capernaum. Let's heal more people or you heal more people. Let's attract crowds. I mean, this is amazing thing that is happening here. They want to capitalize on the surge in popularity that's happening. They want his fame to go out as a miracle worker. And at this point, here's, here's a key to this morning. At this point, the disciples don't really fully understand the mission. 
Jesus is supposed to be about. And really, the reader doesn't fully understand it yet either. I mean, we've just been introduced to this guy. He's proclaiming the kingdom, and now he starts to work miracles, demonstrating the arrival of his kingdom. But we don't really fully understand what he's to be about yet either. But Jesus explains a little bit of that to them. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns. I'm sure that caused a little bit of heartburn for the disciples. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He wants to go elsewhere to preach. That's the reason that he's doing what he does. And that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 39. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So, what was he preaching? Why was this so important? Why was it important that he leave this miracle ministry that he's doing in Capernaum? Why was it so important that he go out and that he continue to preach? What was he preaching? Well, back in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1, it tells us. Verse 15 specifically. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was preaching the arrival of God's kingdom, and he was demonstrating the authority of the kingdom, showing what the kingdom is like, and he's telling people, submit to the rule and reign of God. Repent and believe that the time is fulfilled, that God's purposes that he promised in Israel are happening now. That's what he's telling them. But go back to Mark 1 and verse 39, and I want you to notice where he does this. Look at verse 39. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. And so he's not going out preaching in the street. He's going specifically to the synagogues and preaching. Christ's message is not disconnected from history and from the story of the Bible. What he's doing is he's going to the nation of Israel and he's telling them God's purposes, his plans for you are being fulfilled now. This is a message to the Jewish people. The time is fulfilled. God's rule and reign has arrived. So you must respond in repentance and faith. But as he does this, and this is is the key for you to understand. As he does this, You'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark, at least the beginning of it, as he proclaims the arrival of the kingdom, that God's purposes are being fulfilled, people don't get it. The crowds don't understand. The disciples don't understand. And that gets us back to that whole secrecy thing. They don't understand it, and he wants to keep it quiet. Why? Because the beginning of the Gospel of Mark only gives us half of the picture of who the Messiah is. We see his authority here. That's absolutely right. He is powerful. The kingdom has arrived in him, at least initially. It is advancing. But here's the kicker of the whole message of the Gospel of Mark. Yes, he's authoritative. He's powerful. He's the coming king. But that king is going to lay down his authority. And he's going to give himself up to be sacrificed for the good of others. They wanted all the authority. They wanted all the power. They wanted the healing and the casting out of demons. They wanted the kingdom, but they wanted the kingdom without the cross. That's what they were looking for. And they didn't fully understand it. 
And so Jesus doesn't want them to get hung up on this without the message that he's going to suffer. That's indispensable to his work and to who he is. And that's the crux of what the disciples had such a hard time grasping. They couldn't get it. And you see that in Mark chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 10, as Jesus tells them over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And Peter initially responds and says, what are you talking about? That's why Jesus has to be about proclaiming the kingdom's arrival here to prepare people for his death on the cross, for who he truly is. Listen to Mark 10.45. It's not on the screen, but I'll read it to you. Mark 10.45. This is a summary of Christ's ministry. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to preach, and he came to die. That's why he's here. He came with authority and power, but ultimately he's going to submit that authority and power to the Father's good pleasure, and he's going to die for us. All to open up the path to the kingdom for us and to serve us. And so, for you and I, as we think about this for our lives today, here's where we misunderstand, I think, the way Christ's ministry impacts us in our daily lives. We think, a lot of times we think like the disciples. We want the authority. We want the power. (laughs) We want that aspect of Christ. We don't want to be associated with that which is weak and despised of men. But Christ's whole ministry would say that the path to true greatness is to deny yourself. And I think one of the major points of the Gospel of Mark is that you and I are to pattern our lives after the the type, the form set by Jesus. Our lives are to take on a crucified mentality. Each Christian has to walk the path from suffering to victory, from weakness to strength. And I think one of the things Mark wants you to understand as you're reading this is that you are to walk that path as well. That's the path of discipleship. It's denying yourself. It's taking up your cross. It's putting to death your passions and your desires. It's giving them up, sacrificing them for the good of others, and following after Jesus Christ. A couple of passages of scripture. One's already up there. I have been crucified with Christ. (laughs) I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And here's the thing, who loved me and gave himself for me. We pattern our sacrifice after him. Galatians 5.24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's the essence of discipleship. That's what it means. Put to death your ambitions, your desires, become weak so that others can be strong. 
Give yourself in service to others so they can have abundance. And I love the way Paul put this in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, and right before this in Philippians 3, he has recounted the things that he could call, that he could count as gain, right? I mean, Paul was quite the accomplished theologian and Israelite. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is worth it to die to yourself. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as very strong word, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then here's his goal. I I don't know if you've ever read it this way before, but the very last phrase in this I want to highlight. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. I think that's what Jesus was talking about in Mark 8, denying yourself, becoming like Christ in his death. That's discipleship. And it's discipleship in all the little areas in our lives every single day. It's in how you deal with one another. It's in sacrificing your passions and desires to serve others. For parents, it's sacrificing our good for our kids day in and day out. It's in giving up your own ambition for the good of the church body. It's sacrificing for those in the world who need Christ. So with Paul, I would ask you this morning, what's your value system? Do you value ambition, position, status? Or, like Paul, has the gospel of Jesus Christ come crashing into your life and turned your value system upside down so that what was gain you now count as loss and what was valuable you now count as rubbish so that you can gain Christ because ultimately he's worth knowing and you because you love him want to pattern your life after his so that you can be like him in his death let the cross shape your value system today Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. I pray now that you would have your Holy Spirit do his work in our hearts. Use the scriptures to point out areas where we need to deny ourselves, where we need to give up our rights and ambitions in order to serve others. Be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.